We're going to spend some time considering all that we've heard. We're going to turn our attention to this man who was crucified. We have an awesome prop behind us, don't we? I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us to make the most of it this morning. So let's quieten our hearts and, uh, and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to turn our attention to your word. By your Holy Spirit now, Father, be at work. Soften our hearts, open our ears, unclench clenched fists. Father, would you help us to hear you afresh this morning, that we might meet Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, there was a, a notice fastened over the top of Jesus that said he was a king. But I, I was thinking about kings. And I was thinking about Australians and kings. Not, not entirely sure I'm representative of anything, really. But w- when I think of a king, this is the first thing that kind of pops into my head. King Kong, right? Uh, king Furniture, because, you know, I'm exposed to ads all the time. A Burger King, nice. And, uh, and maybe a king-sized bed, right? Well, what, what do these kings ask of you? What do these kings ask of you? Well, King Kong asks a couple of hours. Uh, king Living asks some space in your living room. Burger King asks about 10 minutes of your life, although I think that's 10 minutes off your life probably, isn't it? Uh, and then uh, the king-size bed asks you to get bigger sheets because you've been living in poverty before in a sub-king-sized uh, bed. That these kings... Don't demand very much from us, really. Jesus wants more. And so this morning, I want us to consider the question, what's he done to deserve that? What's Jesus done to deserve more from us? Well, let's consider. I want you to meet a man in the pages of the Bible this morning, a man who was so good you just want to kill him. It's funny, we we have these strange turns of phrase, you know. Uh, When people are really, really good, we'll often say something like, you know, so good. I just want to kill him. We don't mean it. We're not serious. But in the world around Jesus at this time, Jesus was so good, people wanted to kill him. If we pick the story up just after Jesus has raised Lazarus, you remember Lazarus? You've heard of him. John Howard made him famous, I think, didn't he? Lazarus with a triple bypass. I think that was John Howard's uh, turn of phrase. A, a, guy, a guy back from the dead. Jesus had just raised a dead man back to life. And I want you to hear what the Jewish leaders made of Jesus. Here's what they said. They got together in their council, and then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, basically the, the religious honcho, he spoke up. You know, nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Jesus had just raised someone from the dead, and the religious leaders, rather than putting a crown on his head, decided that was the day that they needed to make sure they bumped him off. So good, you have to kill him. Jesus was a man who did no wrong. Uh, The apostle Peter lived with Jesus for three years, lived in the same house, hung out with him for three years. And when he wrote his letter in the Bible, he said 
He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He spent three years with him and he said he committed no sin. You could spend a week with me and I'm sure I'd trip up. In fact, it wouldn't take that long. Jesus committed no sin. Uh, we, we We find that Jesus is historically a man who lived and suffered and died. So one of his friends told us he committed no sin. A Roman historian tell us, tells us that Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Was Jesus historical? Yes, he was. Who tells me this? Roman historians writing in 115 AD, right next door to when Jesus did it. I thought I might ask somebody from uh, another faith, in this case, Islam, uh, Abu Hurara, thank you very much, uh, excellent Luke. Um, he's uh, one of uh, the people who hung out with Muhammad, okay? And he writes a series of sayings of the prophet. And here's what he said. He said, I heard Allah's apostle saying, that's Muhammad, there is none born, uh, uh, born among the offspring of Adam, but Satan touches it. A child, therefore, cries loudly at the time of birth because of the touch of Satan, except Mary and her child. In Islam, they say, Jesus is untouched by sin. Untouched by sin. And then you get someone like Gandhi, right? Up there with the Dalai Lama, if you're in that kind of uh, ordering of things. A, 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 A peaceful man. He says this, I know no one who has done more for humanity than Jesus In fact, there is nothing wrong with Christianity. I'm sure he probably would put an asterisk next to that, but let's go with that. The trouble is with you Christians, you do not begin to live up to your own teachings. Now that makes sense to us, doesn't it? That implies that we mess things up, but not the Saviour. And here it is, even someone who would not receive him as Saviour acknowledges that Christians fall far short of the holy standard that Jesus himself set. It's amazing, isn't it? He was a man who did no wrong. You heard him in court with Pontius Pilate. I want to show you these four times where Pontius Pilate, in in just one chapter of John's account of Jesus' life, John says that Pilate acquits him of guilt. Listen to number one. What is truth, Pilate retorted as he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. At which point you think the game's over, but they persist. And so later on, In 19 verse 4, it says, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. That's two times. How many times does this judge need to rule? Well, they persist in kicking up a ruckus. Once more, Pilate came out to the Jews gathered there. Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that. Do you know the refrain yet? I find no basis for a charge against him. And just when you thought we'd heard everything that Pilate could possibly add to everything, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so Pilate declared three times he was guiltless and then went about the process of trying to set him free, and he failed. And Simeon did a great job of bringing us some of the mindset of Pilate in struggling in the pragmatics of being the ruler of that city. And so what did he do? Well, he brought out this famous thing, I wash my hands of this matter. Have you heard that turn of phrase? It comes from Pilate. I wash my hands of this matter. I am guiltless of the blood of this man. 
and yet he wasn't. Despite his declaration, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And what does this mean? What, what did Pilate do to Jesus? Have you heard this turn of phrase, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy? Have you heard that turn of phrase? When something really terrible happens, you say, I wouldn't even wish that on my worst enemy. Well, I want to tell you what happened to Jesus. I want to tell you what happened to Jesus today. It says in 19 verse 1, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And for most of us, we, we would think, okay, that would have been a bit painful. I want to tell you today, while those lines are incredibly understated, we have no access to it today. We, we just simply do not understand what it would mean. For the Romans to flog Jesus was akin to a death sentence. What they would do is they would take the condemned man and tie him to the post, hands up like that. And then they would get out this flagellum, this whip. It was not long. You know, you know we, we're brought up on cat and nine tails, all that sort of stuff. It wasn't long. It was short, thick leather with steel balls on the end and bits of broken sheep bone woven into it. It would be one or two soldiers who would stand over the prostrate body of the man and they would beat him with this whip. The steel balls would bruise. The sheep's bone would cut. As you do it again and again and again, the whole back would begin to disintegrate. The bruising would go through, through tissue, through muscle, tearing and bleeding. To be flogged was to be brutalized in an extraordinary way. People often ask, why did Jesus only take such a short time to die on the cross? It was because of this, because of this flogging that he received prior to the crucifixion. But this, the soldiers had more in store. You know, foreign occupying armies have very little love for local people, do they? And they're mostly bored because what are they there for? They're there to fight wars, but what do they do? They sit in the barracks, yeah, and play card games and wait until something fun happens. Well, today, Pilate sends them a toy. Here's one of the locals who claims to be a king. Bring it on. We weren't doing anything else this afternoon. So what do they do? Having flogged him, having reduced him to blood and strips of skin, they play games with him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. This uh, euphorobia milli is the plant, apparently, that the crown of thorns was made from. Can you see those thorns? They put this crown on Jesus' head and then it says they struck him repeatedly, driving those thorns into his head. They placed the purple robe over the top of his broken back and they mocked him. Of course they mocked him. Here in their power was the king of the vanquished country that they had dominated. And he's a king, is he? Well, he's in our control. Hail, king of the Jews, while we beat and humiliate you. 
this crown and this Rome was their way to mock him. Not only was he broken physically, but he was mocked mercilessly. When he was brought back in this state, clothed in his robe, with the, with the crown of thorns on his head, bloody from the whipping, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify, because enough had not already happened. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. It's it's amazing what happens next. It's amazing what happens next. It says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Now, Pilate is the one in charge, is he not? He is. He's the governor of Jerusalem. He has this legion of soldiers at his disposal. He's mocked him. He's flogged him. And yet it says that this silent, bloodied, mocked, humiliated man in front of him is causing fear in the Roman governor. Isn't that amazing? It should have been contempt. It says he was even more afraid. And he says to Jesus, don't you realize that I've, I, I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Don't you understand? I'm the boss here. Why won't you talk to me is what, what, what Pilate's saying. I could save you. How ironic. I could save you. Jesus answered, and this I'm sure chilled Pilate to the bone. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Can you see his fate? He's saying, I've got the power. And Jesus says, you would have no power other than it was granted to you. I am in your hands because of the plan of the one who is over you. He is in charge and you are merely a pawn in his hands. And Pilate worked to set Jesus free. But you know what? It didn't work. And it didn't work because they put that terrible claim in front of him. If you have any other one claiming to be a king, you're no friend of Caesar. And Pilate could not allow that. He couldn't be the the head of Jerusalem and have another king in place of Caesar. Caesar was paying the bills. Caesar was his boss, and so that was it. Game over. He crucified him. Now, what does it mean to be crucified? For us, crucifixion is, I don't know, it's, an, it, it, it's ancient. It, it's far away from us. We, we do the thing where we put a cross around our necks, and they're beautiful. For the Romans, for the people of this time, crucifixion was called the living death. The living death. It was turned into an art form of excruciation from the cross, excrucis, from the cross, excruciation. And anyone who was on the cross was a fool. Now, this is a piece of graffiti from 200 AD in Rome. It's, uh, it says these words. It says, Alexa Menas worships his God. Alexa Menace is on the side here. I don't know if you can make out this little figure um, just here. Here's his God, and I want you to see what this donkey-headed fool is on. It was utterly unbelievable to worship 
someone, anyone who was crucified. They were obviously a loser if they were on a cross. And so Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, to those who are no Jews. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What he's saying is our message that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the promised one of God, the creator of the universe, the one who was rescued us from sin. If it's anything involving a cross, it's foolishness. And here we have graffiti evidence that Christians were looked on as stupid for worshipping someone who was crucified. Humiliation was the very heart of crucifixion. I want to show you why I think Jesus is awesome. We have this Australian turn of phrase. Well, <clears throat> maybe the polite among you do not have this turn of phrase. But if, someone, if someone's really awesome, right? Bloody hero. Bear with me. Bear with me. On the side over there is the footbone of a man called Yohanan ben Hagkol. His footbone was found in AD, well, found in 1967, I think it was. Um, it was from AD 70 in a tomb in Jerusalem. His, uh, his footbone still had the 19 centimetre nail through it, unable to be extracted from when he was crucified. It says in John 19, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him. It's incredible how little the Bible says about what happened. It just says they crucified him. And for everyone who was reading it at the time, it would be a gut-clenching response to that. For us, we think it's just, and there they crucified him. One man on one side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It went, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And this is what that, that notice would have looked like. It's got three languages on it. I, I want you to look at the bottom one, which is Greek, uh, so which is um, Latin. And I just want you to see that the sign said he's the king of the Jews. You'll recognize this word here, Rex. King. Jesus was the king of the Jews, and he was crucified under a sign that declared as much. In essence, the Romans thought that they were putting up a billboard to say, don't play games with the Romans. You'll get messed up. Kings die here. That's what they thought the sign was saying, but it was declaring the truth that Jesus truly was the king of Israel. Now, I want to put this image up, and I want to tell you before I put it up, that if there are kids still here, you want them to look away. This comes from the passion of the Christ, and I don't put it up for gore or impact. It's not to just make a thing about it. What I want us to do is to see it's horrific beyond comprehension. Having been flogged and then crucified, Jesus was a bloody hero. The terrible thing is, as we look at this, that what we see 
What, what we could see would shock us. What we could see, what, if you were standing before this cross on that day, what you could see would shock you beyond all belief, but there was something else happening. There was something that you couldn't see that was happening as well. Now, when we say someone has done something incredibly strenuous, we say they've gone to hell and back. Have you heard that, heard that before? They've gone to hell and back. And when some place is terrible, we say it's a God-forsaken place, and you might mention various bits and pieces around the place, right? It, it might be uh, something you're making fun of. You say it's God-forsaken. God-forsaken in this sense is Syria today, yes? It's this sense of utter desolation. It's the place where you go, there's no humanity left here. It is utterly God-forsaken. The cross was truly God-forsaken place. If we think about the crucifixion, we see two things happening here. We see a bloody body, but there's more going on. There's something spiritual going on that makes this crucifixion different to the hundreds of others that would happen all the way around the Roman world. Do you know when, when Jerusalem rebelled and then was attacked by the Romans in AD 70, it's said that they crucified up to 500 Jews a day. Now, what is one crucifixion among 500? What is one crucifixion among 10,000? What is one crucifixion among 200,000? Why this cross? Why this man? It wasn't because it was more bloody than anyone else's. It wasn't. It was because of the unseen thing, the God-forsakenness of it. What made it so God-forsaken was the spiritual reality. It grew dark in Jerusalem that day, dark. And on that day, in a very real sense, what happened on the cross was God poured out on Jesus the punishment for sin that you and I deserved. On the cross, Jesus, who had always been intimately related to his father, was abandoned. On the cross, Jesus felt the wrath of God. It was focused down to this one point in space and time, all the wrath on sin and death that we deserve fell on the Son. Our lying, our cheating, our dishonoring of God fell on His Son. He bore it in His body. On the cross, because of that abandonment, because of that wrath, Jesus truly experienced hell. Truly experienced hell. I want to tell you today, guys, sin is a bloody mess. It's no small bickies. Jesus was crucified. He suffered the wrath of God for you and I because it must be paid this way. Do you remember his prayer in the garden? Father, if there is any other way, take this cup of suffering from me. Yes? Do you think the father heard the prayer of his son? He must have heard it. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering from me. And yet the next day, Jesus ends up where? crucified. It must be the only way for sin's payment. Sin is a bloody mess. And so last night we talked about the Passover, that the Jews at this time were, were experiencing the Passover, being reminded of the Passover. And Jeff spoke to us last night of the ancient story of the Jews, that when they were released from Egypt, they painted blood on the door frames of their houses. They sacrificed a lamb in place of their firstborn son that the angel of death might pass over their house. 
they sacrificed a lamb that their firstborn may not die. On this Passover, God sacrificed his son, the lamb of God, that we might be passed over from suffering the wrath of God. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was saying the punishment is paid. Sin's price is borne in my body and it is done, signed, sealed, delivered. This transaction is complete. Sin's price has been paid. Now, it's amazing. I'm talking about something biblical here, but but we we have a kind of a fascination with this concept. You've heard this turn of phrase, he got what was coming to him. Have you heard this before? It's tied up with this idea, I think lots of people appear to love karma. Do you know karma? You get what's coming to you. It'll, what goes around comes around. Is that, that the one you're, you're familiar with, right? I want you to think about karma because lots of people tell me that they like it. I reckon that's rubbish and you haven't thought about it. I'll tell you why. If we think about Barabbas, remember that man, Barabbas? What did he deserve? Jesus' place is what he said, didn't he, in in this little reconstruction we saw? Barabbas, did he get what was coming to him? I want to say he didn't. What about Jesus himself? If anyone deserved good karma, yeah? Are we going to get with the program, right? Did anyone deserve good karma? Well, Jesus is the one who never sinned, right? Never sinned. No deceit was on his mouth. And what happened to Jesus? He ends up here. You've got to say this karma thing is rubbish, right? It didn't work for the one who must have been worthy of getting skipped over the rubbish in life. And what about you? What about you? You might think, uh, I didn't deserve this traffic. I've done pretty well this week. That's a bit facetious. I reckon some of you have been lucky in life. You know what it is to be lucky. You think, I didn't deserve that. It just happened. You had that experience? Being lucky. You've also had the opposite experience of being unlucky. Do you know who that happened to? The same person. So you can't be lucky and unlucky and have karma be the working engine behind the universe, can you? You with me? Doesn't work. So here's the thing I want to ask you though. The main reason that we don't want karma to work is because of our sin. Because if that's what it took to get my sin forgiven, I don't want to meet God unforgiven. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you really want what's owed you? Because I don't. And there is another way. There's a beautiful line from, uh, from Bono and you too. He has this beautiful line. He says, grace works outside of karma. Grace works outside of karma. I absolutely love it. I'd love to get it tattooed somewhere if I believed in that sort of thing. But it's uh, It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Grace works outside of karma. It's the karma killer. Grace. What is grace? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous 
him for the unrighteous me to bring you to God. That's what we're talking about today. Something extraordinary, an extraordinary exchange took place. The one who didn't deserve it died for my sin. I don't get what I deserve. That's grace. That's the best news in the world. Let me paint you a picture of it. I I, I think it's like this. Let's say I drop you in the ocean. Are there any good swimmers here? Any of you good at swimming? Okay, I saw one hand, a little cheeky hand. Now the rest of you are intimidated because Nicole's a very good swimmer. I can tell this. Okay. No, seriously, anyone good at swimming? All right, none of you are. That's good. You're going to love this illustration then. It's brilliant. I'm dropping you. I'm dropping you on a stormy day in the gap between Australia and New Zealand. Okay? Right in the middle. We'll get the GPS coordinates. I'm dropping you in. All right. I'm telling you, salvation is swimming to whichever shore you prefer. How lovely is that? Okay, so you can go that way or that way. You work it out. Salvation is swimming to the shore. How many of you reckon will make it? All right, very good. Here's the wonderful thing, though. Some of you might start to feel very good about yourselves because you're swimming a bit further than me. I'm drowning after about 50 strokes, I reckon. Now I'm over it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm never going to get there, right? I'll, I'll give up really quickly. And some of you will be powering on, right? And you, as you look over your shoulder at my hand disappearing under the waves, you'll think to yourself, I'm a lot better than him. I am doing really well. And let's say some of you are extraordinary, right? You could swim the English Channel, right? How far do you get? Quarter of the way? An eighth of the way? It's a big ditch. Getting to salvation on our own is drowning in an ocean beyond the shore. I want to tell you today that you are utterly unable to save yourselves. Utterly unable to save And And religion says to you, do more. Improve your swim stroke. Get some really nice cozies. That's what religion says to you. Work on your stroke. You'll feel better when you've got the good gear on. You'll be able to look back at those other losers and go, I'm leaving them behind. That's what religion says. Do more. And you know what? You can do as much religion. You can try and be as good as you can and you will drown. You will drown because you can never do enough. That sure will always be out of your reach. Here's the difference. The difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. These religions say do. This is what Christianity says. It says it's been done by someone else, not you. Done on this cross. And what's happened is the helicopter has turned up. And a hand has been reached out to you and says, I will save you. I will pluck you from this ocean of failure and inability. And I will take you to the shore. That's what Jesus is offering today. Full forgiveness. Grace awaiting you. The confidence to know you will never be condemned before God. That's what's on offer. And it has been utterly done. And so what I want to tell you today is, will you drown or will you take the hand that's offered you? Forget the pride of swimming a few strokes further and look for the rescuer. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Listen to this beautiful turn of phrase. By his wounds, you have been healed. Give Jesus a crack. Give Jesus a crack today. I want to give you four ways to think about it. Give him a crack. (laughs) He needs a crack in your self-reliance right now. He needs a crack in your self-justification, in your self-righteousness. He needs a crack in you. Open up a little bit. I want to tell you today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray to take that hand. Right now, today, in about 
two or three minutes time, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray to say, I want to take the hand. You might like to stay a bit longer, not today, although have the afternoon tea, I mean the morning tea with hot cross buns. You might want to stay a bit longer. You might want to say, actually, I'd like to find some more about this Jesus. We're running a course we call Jesus for the Curious. It's for you. We sit down and we open the Bible together and we read it and we find out, who is this Jesus? I just met him today. He's a bloody mess, but I want to know more. So you might like to let us know, I want to know more. I want to stay and find out more. Some of you want to say, yay, I'm with the crucified bloke. I'm with that bloke. If, if Alexa Menace was, was mocked 1,800 years ago, I'm with him. I know no other way to be saved than my crucified saviour. And I'm proud of him and I love him and I'll stand with him because he did everything that I might be forgiven and saved today. So some of you want to say, yay, I'm on board with Jesus. And I reckon today, some of you are sitting here, probably with your arms folded, though don't adjust them now, I'm not looking at you. Some of you want to say nay. You want to say, it's not for me. I only came because I was being really nice to somebody who loves me, and I'm here because they, asked, they dragged me along, all right? I've done pretty well to be here. There was a bloke who turned Jesus down. His name was Judas. And in this amazing picture out here that Michelle painted for us, I want you to go and look at it afterwards. She has this picture of Judas. And do you know what he's doing there? He's taking the money he sold Jesus out for, and he's pouring it out on the floor of the temple to say, you can have it back. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Whatever I got, whatever gain I got from selling Jesus out was not worth it. And I want to say the same to you today. You know, our health, our health doctors, our departments of health, they do these things for cancer, for smoking, yeah? They, they tell me, if you smoke, you could cause damage to unborn babies, that you can cause vascular disease, that you can get lung cancer. Can you see the pictures they put up for that? Do you know why they do that? Do they want you to smoke anymore? I'll just check in with you because those imagery is pretty backward. It's a bit subtle. Do they want you to smoke anymore? No, they don't. They really don't, okay? And I don't want you to walk from this building today, having heard what you've heard, without knowing that you need to turn from your sins. Have a listen to this. This is Jesus' warning on the pack, okay? This is for real. These are Jesus' own words in John. Here's what he says. He says this, Whoever believes the Son, that's him, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now, if you think I take any joy in telling you that today, you're wrong. But just like that packet of cigarettes is horrific, I want you to know, don't leave here saying no to Jesus. It's a great day to get saved. It's a great day to get saved. I want to tell you today that Jesus is a bloody hero who went to hell and back for you and gave you what you don't deserve. What does this king, what does this king deserve? Well, he doesn't deserve two hours of my time. He doesn't deserve better bedsheets. This is what he deserves. Utter, unconditional surrender. That's what he deserves. Unconditional surrender. No asterisks, no contract where you say, God, if you, I will, off the table. Come to him today and say, I give up. I want to be saved. I want to take the hand of the rescuer. I know I'll drown in my religion. I want to be right with you. And do you know why all this happened? Jesus tells us it's because he loves us. Don't turn him down. I want to give you a prayer you can pray. 
It looks like this. So simple. We pray to God. If you've never prayed before, I reckon you have anyway, but if you've never prayed to God, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, thank you for sending Jesus to take my place on the cross. Can we appreciate that today? Thank you. We're going to say, I am sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for my sins. I know I've hurt you and others. We're going to say, please, please forgive me. Please come into my heart. Come into my life as king. And then we're going to say amen. Now I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that with me right now. Because today's a great day to get saved. I'm going to say the line. I'm going to leave space for you to repeat it. And we'll say amen together. Let's pray. Thank you for sending Jesus to take my place on the cross. I'm sorry for my sins. I know I've hurt you and others. Please forgive me. Please come into my life as king. Amen.